0: It was a privilege to come back together and to study God's Word. and We're in Romans chapter 11, and so profoundly rich, this section of Scripture. And I trust that your hearts are going to be comforted by these truths as much as my heart is comforted by the marvelous riches of God's grace towards us. But it is amazing, as we look out into the world around us, there's no doubt that there's evil around, we can see it all the time. We can see hostility towards God. We can see unrighteousness. We can see men and women raising their hands up against God, warring against God, opposing him and his ways, wanting his own, each man wanting his own way. We can see man who is trying to rewrite history without God involved and rewrite societies without God around, recreating gender and family and nations altogether absent of God. And in all of this, we see the wickedness that comes out of the human heart as man lives apart from God and is committed to his own waywardness. What causes us to wonder in this time is, Why is God so patient? Why is he taking so long to give in a response to it? Why doesn't God just bring his judgment? Why doesn't he show himself and end this foolishness and cause man to return back? Why doesn't God just come out and put an end to evil? To vindicate himself and to vindicate his name and to justify his testimonies. Bring glory again to his name. I suppose if we look at the world and we see man's rebellion in the world, we can accept that to some degree that God is patient and long-suffering. What becomes hard for us to understand is God's patience towards his chosen people, towards Israel. Why would God choose a people, a nation, call that nation out from all the other nations, set his love affection upon them, say of that nation, this is my chosen people, a royal nation, a holy priesthood, called out by my name to reflect my glory, and then God then patiently endures their rebellion. Why? Why would he do that? I mean... Many nations existed during the time of God's choosing Israel and calling them out, and many of those nations have passed away. Where are the Amorites today? You hang out with the Amorites right now? And on and on, many nations existed during the time of the God selecting of the Jews, but... It's the Jewish nation that persists. It's the Jewish nation that hangs around. Even when they were, the Jerusalem was destroyed and they were scattered to the other ends of the world, brought back together, they still are around. Why? What is God doing? What is he accomplishing in this time? And how is he using their rebellion and their rejection and their evil to accomplish his good purposes and that's exactly where Paul takes us in Romans chapter 11. He helps us to gain a kind of divine vantage point on God's purposes and works. And it comforts our hearts when we see this divine vantage point because now we understand what God's purpose is behind evil. If evil is operating in this world, evil's in his creation, why would he allow it? Why isn't he wiping it out? What is he doing in the midst of this And we saw last week, the first thing that Paul demonstrated from this text is that Paul was distinguishing between God's people and those who were not. As he said in verse 5, those who were chosen according to God's gracious choice. In Romans 11 verse 7, those who were chosen obtained it, the rest, the other group, the rest were hardened. There's a distinguishing work that God does. He distinguishes the true from the false. He distinguishes the light from the darkness. He distinguishes the sheep from the goats. He distinguishes the elect from the rest. As we saw in Romans 9, he distinguishes the vessels of mercy from the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God does a work to distinguish his people from the rest. That is part of the reason why God allows so much evil to persist in a world today as to draw away the unrighteous into the wide road that leads to destruction and to paint out the narrow way for those who belong to God. God separates and distinguishes and reveals who belong to him. And wickedness ruling, which, which manifests itself, draws away the unrighteous, causes the righteous to turn, to turn. It's not as if God is pushing for perfection in us, but he's pushing for a direction that we turn away from unrighteousness and we are turning to the living God, to which he pours out his favor and kindness upon us. So we saw the first principle that Paul is pointing out, that God is using evil and has used it as he hardened the hearts of those who rejected. He used it to distinguish between those people who are his and those who are not. But then he went on more and say, how God hardened? How did he harden? How did he expose them? Well, he hardened by pulling back his truth, by pulling away his message. This is how he hardened. He pulled back, he pulled away so that they would not hear, they would not respond, they would not believe. And it says in verse 8, you notice there, it says in verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor. That word stupor is a rather interesting word. It's translated a lot of different ways in various translations. It's translated as slumber. It's translated as deep sleep. It's translated as sluggishness. It's been translated as numbness, as dulling, as lethargy. The idea is God gave them over to a heart, a dullness of spirit. That's what He gave them. That is, they didn't want to hear anymore, they didn't want to respond to the truth. Part of a hardening heart is one that says no longer appreciates truth, no longer desires truth. Become hardened to it. No longer responsive when truth is brought. And as we noticed last week in the passage there that Paul was quoting from Isaiah 29, where Isaiah had said that he had hardened Israel by taking away the prophets and the seers. He had taken away the messengers of the word of God. This is how he gave them to a spirit of stupor. He took away from them the truth which is a particularly dangerous place for people to be in this day and age. Because we live in a world, as Ephesians 2 says, controlled by the prince of power of the air. We live in a world where there are, as Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 1-3, through 3, there are doctrines of demons. We live in a day and age where there is active rebellion against God, there is hostility towards God, and there is godless teaching ever before us. And the worst condition that you can be in, in the midst of that, is apathetic to the truth. Having a dullness, an unwillingness to hear. It's a hardness of the heart that takes place when one does not want to hear the truth any longer, does not want to come under it, and it's a hardness that leads to utter destruction. The unrighteous are in this state continually. They will not turn. They will not wake up. They will not come out of their slumber. They will not come out of their bew- bewilderment. They will not turn and hear and receive. They suppress it and reject it. it. So what Paul's been laying out from the feet from Romans 1 on. The struggle for us, you and I, is like, as believers, sometimes we feel our heart drift into that state. We know it all too well where we hungered at one point and we didn't hunger as much at another point. The good news for, good news for us is God restores us. He restores us as we, as we repent. He restores us and renews us and re-energizes us as we come back to His truth. But the wicked the unrepentant, the rest who are hardened, Romans eleven seven, will not turn back. That's their present and continual state. They will not come back in repentance. They will not come to a hearing of the truth. They will stubbornly resist and remain dull to any truth because they are hardened towards it. Resistant entirely. That's why the Hebrew writer warns in Hebrews 4-7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The distinguishing element between those who are graciously chosen of God, those who've obtained his rewards, is they respond in sensitivity to the truth. They long for it, they come under it, they hear it, they receive it, but the unrighteous do not they suppress so how has god brought in then reprobation hardening he has brought it by withholding truth or taking it away turning them over to their own devices and that's what verse 9 and 10 says he just turned them over go do your own thing and as man went and did his own thing it set up a snare for him and he fell short why did he do this Well, that's where we pick up in Romans 11. From verse 11 through verse 24, Paul explains the whys of all this work. Why would God allow so much hardening? Why would he allow it to go on for so long? Why this resistance? We're going to look at it. There's two parts to this. We'll look at the first part this morning. In verses 11 through verse 15 is the first part. Then from verse 16 through verse 24 is the second part to answer to his question. As I said, We'll look at the first this morning. And what Paul gives us here is three reasons why God was so patient with the rebellious. His rebellious people, Israel. Why he has been so long suffering in their rejection. Three reasons. He brought out hardening for what it was. It was to distinguish how did he do it? By withholding the truth and by turning man over to his natural devices. Why would he do this? In the first hand, well, let's notice the text and I'll give you the supports. First of all, 11 through 15, here's what it says I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch, then, as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, for if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In this section, Paul gives us three reasons why God has been so patient with Israel in their rebellion. And so patient with the unrighteous as they have been hostile. And he does this, first of all, by notice how he sets up the the situation in verse 11 in verse he says i say then they did not stumble so as to fall did they the very natural question that comes out of what paul has just stated is all right if israel's rebellion they're in rebellion they're hostile they won't hear the truth they're in a kind of blind stupor they've set up a table for themselves that just leads them to their own destruction and if they're not the chosen who have attained it they're the hardened then has God just abandoned Israel altogether? Have they stumbled so as to fall? Have they been entirely removed? That term fall there could just be like the rain falling from the sky. How it could be used. It's been translated that way. The word fall in Matthew chapter 17, or yeah, Matthew chapter 17 uh, the word fall is used at the disciples when they fell on their face, when they saw the glory of God. They just fell, passed over, face down because they, they saw Christ pull back his flesh and reveal his glory. They passed out. But fall here is a, has a metaphorical sense of the idea of being led to destruction. Turn over to Romans chapter 14 and verse 4. You see that idea there. Romans chapter 14 and verse 4, this is the context speaking about conscience and conscience activities. And the temptation that we have in our hearts that when somebody does something a little different than the way we would do it, and we have a different state of our conscience, we would then tend to judge them. Well, you're not acting the way I would act in this kind of gray area, and so we would cast judgment upon them. And Paul is calling the Romans out for doing that, and he says in verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? Notice, to his own master he stands or falls. He has to come before his master, and his master will either cause him to stand, or he'll cause him to be led to fall, to destruction. He will be under the judgment of his master. This idea here, cause him to fall under his master, being being under his judgment. But the Lord will cause us to stand, he goes on to say. Point being that this term fall, back to Romans 11 and verse 11, he is ultimately asking the very natural question, if Israel is in rebellion, then is God then finally done with them? Has God just gotten rid of them? Which again would be our natural mindset, yes, if if they've rebelled, if they've rejected, just God, wipe your hands with them, done. They've rejected, just get rid of them. To which Paul answers, may it never be. He's not done with his chosen people. He is not done with the nation that he has elected and called out. He is not done accomplishing his good purposes with them. He still has a purpose. Then what in the world is he doing? And to which Paul gives the answer, okay, well, here's the first thing he's doing. He is bringing salvation to the Gentiles. Bringing salvation. That's what the text says. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. First purpose, and God enduring with much patience these hostile people, so that God it gives God the opportunity to bring salvation to the Gentiles, to the nations. It's profound truth that is brought out here. A profound truth of God's marvelous work has been proclaimed, and Paul has been making this known in his argument. We saw this back in chapter 9, in verse 30. When In chapter 9, in verse 30... Paul writes, What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? The Gentiles, they weren't coming for this, but they received what they didn't even pursue. The Jews did not receive it. Paul is making it clear God, their rebellion has led to the salvation of the nations. The Gentiles. The outcast. Now, you have to understand how mind-blowing this was to Paul and to the Jews at that time. Let me just show you a few passages. First of all, let me show you from Paul's perspective. Turn over to Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians chapter three. Paul takes a moment to describe his ministry. And what he was engaged in in his ministry. And he he tells the Ephesians that he is engaged in the ministry of the gospel. And he is proclaiming a mystery. And here he unfolds what that mystery is. Now understand this as well. That as he's writing, he is imprisoned. So he is in chains. This is one of the prison epistles, and he is writing while in prison talking about how excited he is to be part of this ministry while his life is enslaved to be under judgment. Notice how he starts, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, rattling his chains there a little bit as to remind them what he's, where he's presently at, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me. So he is saying to his readers here, let me talk a little bit about what God has done in my life here to be a part. And here's what God has done. Verse 3, that by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Stop right there for a second. Saying to his audience, God has given me something to communicate that the other generations didn't know they didn't have. Prophets beforehand didn't know this. The Old Testament saint wasn't seeing this. This is a mystery, something that was hidden to them but has now been revealed, has now been made known, and I get to deliver this mystery. What's the mystery? Verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs And fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Now, Paul writes this. This is profoundly rich. He's saying, here I was, a Jew going about my business as a Jew, studying under Gamaliel, studying the best of the Jewish traditions, a part of the Sanhedrin. I was there among the people of God, ministering with great zeal, even persecuting the church. And then God rescued me and brought me out to go preach the gospel to the nations, that Gentiles would be saved. It is unfathomable to Paul. What he has hidden to the Old Testament saints, what it was not made known to them, that Paul now gets to deliver and proclaim and make known. There is salvation brought by God, preached through the gospel to the Gentiles of the unfathomable riches of Christ, that they too can experience the riches of God's grace. This absolutely stunned Turn over to Acts chapter 28. Let me show you one of Paul's sermons where this theme comes out. And it overlaps again with our context of Romans 11. Acts chapter 28. Paul is imprisoned. Paul here is in this state. While imprisoned, he is able to receive visitors and when these visitors came in to meet with him, notice Acts chapter 28 and verse 23 and following. It says, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying to them about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. So the setting is, for all day, Paul has gathered together a large number that came to him, and for the whole day, he is committed to convincing them from the law of Moses to the prophets of Jesus Christ. Verse 24 says, Some were being persuaded by the things spoken. But others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. How did Paul conclude his sermon? To that obstinate group who left in unbelief, he concluded with these words, The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears; and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Again, Paul has stuck to this theme of hardening and has pointed out this is what was taking place in Israel. They were hardening their heart. Wasn't that the truth was being withheld. In fact, this is quite the opposite. The truth was being given to them from the law of Moses through the prophets. The message about Jesus Christ was being made known to them and they resisted. And so, again, Prophet Isaiah's message is true. This people has become dull. They won't use their eyes to see. They won't use their ears to hear. They have rejected and turned aside and they leave in rebellion. To which verse 28 concludes, Therefore... Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. You've rejected, so they believed. You rejected, they received. You would not hear, they heard. You would not see, they see. Paul was, again, stunned that God had called him out, this former Jew who was rebellious to God that God rescued him and gave him the privilege to do this mystery and now he's stunned as he's taking the gospel to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are repenting Jesus anticipated this turn over to Matthew chapter 22 Jesus anticipated exactly this particular work none of this is by surprise none of this is plan B none of this is an accident This has been God's eternal purposes. And Jesus warns his hearers at this time. Matthew chapter 22 is the final Passion Week of our Lord. Our Lord is speaking to the multitudes. He's speaking to the crowds. And he's speaking to them in parables as the crowds are flocking in and hearing him. At the beginning of the week, they loved him. At the beginning of the week, they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. In the highest, they, they worshipped him. Within a few days, they were quickly turned and their hearts were obstinate towards him. But right in the middle of that, Matthew chapter 22 records for us a parable that Jesus gives to the crowds to explain to the crowds what is taking place. And notice what he says: Jesus spoke to them again in the parables, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. And again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened livestock Are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways. As many as you you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. This parable is the message that Christ gave to the Jews the beginning of the Passion Week, because it was about to be fulfilled. Here the king came, invited them to turn, to receive him, to come in. They rejected, they were obstinate, hostile, even, as Jesus indicated, murdered the messengers of the king, so they were rejected. And the king went out into the highways and byways and brought in the others from the outside to come in and to fill out the wedding feast. Why was God so patient? Why is He so slow in expressing His wrath so that He may demonstrate salvation to the nations? That He would bring about to the rest of the world salvation. This has always been, again, God's plan and God's purposes. Nothing thwarted his purposes in Israel's rebellion. Paul understood this as he was ministering. Jesus anticipated this. In fact, even Jesus told his disciples to be ready for it. In Matthew chapter 17, when the disciples came out of the Mount of Transfiguration... And the disciples figured at this point, let's just build the temple here. I mean, God, we saw the glory of God. We saw Moses. We saw Elijah. Let's just build three temples, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. We can set up the kingdom right here. As they were coming down, they were trying to wrap their minds around it they were asking jesus about elijah and what does it mean for elijah to come and what she reminded them elijah already came and he was referring to john the baptist basically jesus was telling his disciples everything was in place that if they received me we would set this up right now but they reject they're hostile even Jesus prayed in Matthew chapter 23, Israel, how I long to gather you together like a hen, her chicks. Longed for this restoration, I longed for your repentance, I longed for all of this, but you would not. Back to Romans chapter 11. All of this is to point out this grand theme here. Is that God has been patient? Romans chapter 11, verse 11. God has been patient to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Their rejection was used by God. But it's more than that. More than just bringing salvation, He actually brought salvation to the Gentiles for another purpose. And notice at the end of verse 11 to make them jealous. There is a give and take back and forth. First they rebelled so for the Gentile to be saved. Now the Gentile saved to make the Jews rebellish, So that the Jews, being jealous, would then turn and repent. And continues on. He wanted to make them jealous. He wanted to provoke them. He wanted to show his love and mercy so as to provoke them. And what a greater way to provoke this particular people who rejoiced that they were the stewards of the word of God thought of themselves as the teachers and the guides to the blind as Romans two describes and viewed themselves as the covenant people and the people of promise and the people of the fathers and anticipated the riches of God's glory. And then of course, what makes the Jew angry today is, is that a Jewish rabbi by the name of Jesus would come along and direct his ministers to take the gospel to the nations. That's not for them, it's for us. It should be for us, they would say. It's not for the rest of the world. The rest of the world is worthless. The rest of the world is useless to God. We're his people. And yet, Paul says here, no, Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. To make Israel jealous. Say it like this, a church that reflects the ministry of God's grace and mercy is a group of people that God uses to provoke Israel to repentance. One of the downsides of a church that looks more and more like the world we only think about it in this sense well if the church looks like a world no big deal because God's grace is wonderful and he'll cover everything and so just keep sending it up because God's grace is just magnified in our sin some teachers like to say do you not recognize that God's very purpose is to take the church, the redeemed people of God, and use it as an instrument to cause Israel to turn back in repentance. That's what verse 11 says, to make them jealous. Listen, a people who have been trained to know righteousness, to delight in righteousness, to desire righteousness, to seek their whole lives and conform it to righteousness, is not provoked by a worldly church. It's provoked by... People who have the evidence of God's grace and mercy in their life. Now, we're not standing before the Jews as if we were perfect, as if we kept the law better than they did. No, we stand before them as those who have been redeemed out of the fire, have been transformed and been now filled with the Spirit, walking in newness of life, delighting in the truth, bearing fruit for God, and they have to look at our life and they can give no other answer than God must be in them. No other answer, because if left to our own devices, we would head towards evil, and left to our own devices, we'd be filled with unrighteousness, but because of the work of God and the ministry of God in us, The fruit and the evidence of God's grace and mercy is on display, which should provoke them. That was a work of God. That should be among us. But he's not doing it among us. He's doing it among the Gentile nations. God, save us. That's what should happen. They should see this grace in our ministry life. They should see the good hand of God upon us as they see in us that we are now slaves of righteousness, we are filled with the Spirit, we're walking in newness of life, they should see that and recognize the marvelous ministry of God and be provoked. Why? Because there is now a greater work to come. Notice the last reason. God will use evil to bring resurrection life. Notice what he says in verse 12 and 15. Verse 12. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, that is, their transgression brings salvation to us, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, notice this phrase how much more will their fulfillment be? Saying God has brought you this, brought us this much grace because of their failure, because of their disobedience, because of their rejection. So much more is to come. What's the so much more? Now Paul goes in and explains, verse thirteen and fourteen. He he then reminds the Jews again of his ministry, uh, the Gentiles of his ministry. Notice, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Paul stops here and gives his credentials and says to the, Jewish audi- or the Gentile audience here, Listen, I'm an apostle called out by God to do this very work, and I do it, and I do it with great joy because I desire to move them to jealousy. I desire to see them turn and repent. Why? Verse 15. For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The profound riches that Paul is anticipating here is this. Their first act of rebellion led to the gospel spread through the world and Gentiles converted throughout the world. And as marvelous as that is, as we experience the riches of God's grace and we are been brought in to fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, as we have the hope of eternal life, and all of that is marvelous, what happens when they actually repent? What's going to happen when that nation realizes that the one they rejected, the one that they killed, Christ, the Messiah, whom they have hardened their hearts against, when they have a kind of Isaiah 53 moment, when they come back and look on the one they have pierced and they see him and they recognize that they have rejected their Messiah. What happens when they have a corporate restoration? When they turn back to their God and call out, Paul says, life from the dead. Coming resurrection. The establishment of the millennial kingdom, the coming of God's future plan. Restoration, full Restoration. This is the anticipation that Paul has here. Presently what is happening is partial revival as various Jews are repenting and turning and believing. We saw this in back in verse one of chapter eleven, verse one and two. But future is coming a full restoration. The entire nation turning back in obedience to God and believing upon the gospel of God and receiving Christ. And when that happens, when there's full restoration and turning back to God, then comes God's eternal rewards. Magnificent kingdom set up. The dead in Christ resurrected. Those who endure through the tribulation period enter into, into the kingdom. In this, then, this is the so much more, the how much more, which is this. Yes, right now, because of Israel's rebellion, we have the hope of salvation. Once Israel repents, we'll have the presence of salvation, the fulfillment, the reward, the Messiah before us, his kingdom, his reign. You see, if you get rid of physical Israel here and say, well, this is just a spiritualized principle. This is just a, you know, really just talking about the church. And you are actually robbing then of God's purposes of accomplishing his work now among his people spiritualizing it as it's happening even right now and missing out then on the opportunity to lead us into verse 33 and following, the praise and worship of God for what he's accomplishing. How it's unsearchable. There are those who wish to make this kind of a spiritualized sense. Leon Morris, one of those guys, who takes this as a spiritualized, what, what is meaning in verse 15, but life from the dead, just meaning kind of regeneration. They're going to be born again. They're going to be ushered into the church, is his interpretation. But he does understand the validity of the literal interpretation. He says this, if it is understood literally, then it will be the resurrection of the dead, the general resurrection that ushers in the messianic age. If you just took this plainly, he says, this is exactly what it means. It means the coming of the millennium." Douglas Moo, same thing. Since Paul presents this inclusion of the Jews as an event of the end times, it will likely or it is likely that these phrases refer to the ultimate establishment of God's kingdom through the coming of Christ, bringing with it extraordinary blessings and the resurrection of the dead. So, where is that resurrection? Well, just read Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. You see the first resurrection. Continue through the rest of the chapter, you'll see the second resurrection. The point being is this that Paul is saying, if we are rejoicing because of Israel's rebellion, because it brought us salvation, how much more should we rejoice in their repentance because it brings the kingdom of God? It brings restoration beyond what we can ask or imagine. We are longing for the restoration. The question would be, why would I take this in, in a literal form here? Why would I just take this this way? Well, understand here that throughout this whole context, starting from chapter 9 all the way through chapter 11, Paul has been speaking about the nation Israel, the physical nation. So that contextually, it makes sense. He's speaking about the physical nation, not a spiritualized group. But second of all, and more significantly, Paul is leading us in Romans 11 to a major eschatological event. Notice verse 25 through verse 27. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Again, he's now summarizing his whole argument here, and he's saying, look, this has been a temporal, partial hardening that's going to come to an end, and will come to an end when the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take it away. So from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. This Israel, this nation that is in rebellion has a very central place in God's final redemptive purposes. And when they finally turn, when they are finally restored to God, when that takes place, God starts to reveal all of his eschatological blessings and riches. We long for this. So, Why is God patient? Why is he allowing evil to persist? To bring salvation. And as he brings salvation to us, as he pours out his favor and grace upon us, he provokes Israel back to repentance. Eventually Israel will return back and they will believe. And when they believe, then comes the greater events that we have been anticipating. The coming of Christ and his marvelous kingdom. God is at work accomplishing his good purposes, demonstrating the riches of his glory so that we will ultimately get to verse 29 for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable God is going to do exactly what he says he's going to do what more profound demonstration of divine sovereignty than for God to call out a nation to redeem then that nation to rebel for hundreds of years, for generations upon generations, only for that nation to come to their senses that they have abandoned the truth, turned to their Messiah, see that Messiah, and believe upon God, and God then usher in his eternal work. Oh, the depths, the wisdom, and riches of God. And next week, we'll pick up the second half of that and see the story of the wild olive tree and the branches grafted in. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these truths and this marvelous work. Indeed, we feel like we have received mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace. And this is just but a small taste. For when our redemption has come, when the day that all the promises are fulfilled and come to light, oh, what a marvelous day that will be, when all the hope of Christ and the hope of your work, when all the anticipation that has been welling up becomes reality. Indeed, we are waiting for that day when Israel would turn and believe upon you and receive the one that they have rejected and crucified. For at their restoration... Our joy will be made known, and your glory will be evident to all. We are anticipating this marvelous work, and until that time, may we be the kind of ministry that has received the gospel and bears forth the fruit that you produce so as to provoke your people, so as to be a marvelous testimony of your grace and riches. And when we're tempted to lose heart, and when we're tempted to be overwhelmed by evil, may we understand that you're accomplishing your good purposes. For we do not know how you're moving and directing in every situation, but we do know there's no wayward molecule in this world, there's no event outside of your good control. That you're accomplishing both individual purposes and grand corporate purposes beyond what we can even begin to grasp. And indeed, as we've learned through this study, you're working in ways well beyond our understanding and you don't have to give testimony to it. But that you do gives us more opportunity to give you praise for all that you're doing. Let's move in our midst, to be confident in your word, to proclaim the riches of your truth, to live out gospel messages you've called us to, anticipating the much more, the many more riches that you have set before us will be ours soon enough until that time father increase our faith and grow us so that we would rejoice in this marvelous work it's in christ's name we pray amen